How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Welcome to another episode of EMS World Podcasts. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. We have another great program on tap today. We're going to get into some high-speed, cutting-edge pre-hospital medicine, and who better to have back than two of my favorite guests, Dr. Peter Antevi and Chief Charlie Coyle from the Palm Beach County Fire Rescue Department. Gentlemen, welcome back. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having us again, buddy. Great to be back, Mike. It's great to have the band back, boys. So listen, want to get in today. Uh, we're actually going to entitle this, which was Peter's idea, the five protocols that your agency is too afraid to make. And, uh, you know, this is something that I think, although it, it's funny, it has some true background and meaning to it in the sense that it's it's very, very progressive and 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 not just progressive, but I will say a bit aggressive and not in a negative fashion, but I think that it takes data and it takes uh, input from boots on the ground and it really puts them into practice. Whereas some may look at it as aggressive and, and should be a little bit more conservative, Palm Beach County Fire Rescue is is taking this to a new level and making pre-hospital that much more important to the patient treatment. And so as we start, Peter, I'd like to get your feedback on the aggressive versus progressive versus a conservative type outlook when we talk about these types of protocols. Absolutely. You know, Mike, every protocol that we consider and that we implement has to have data. And a lot of agencies, if you look at healthcare in general, People will wait years before they adopt something that has been even the standard of care for years. That's just how it is in healthcare. So I would advise everybody that you really need to look at the data. Is it applicable to your EMS system? And then not to wait for the guidelines to change because oftentimes these guidelines are made by non-EMS physicians. They're made by ICU physicians. And that data will never matriculate down into EMS because they don't do these things in the hospital. That's number one. Um, and I would say that the second thing is people need to understand we're in Florida, right? <laughs> the delegated practice state. I don't have to wait for the state board to go and change uh, the protocols for me. Uh, I'm very fortunate. I have people like Chief Coyle um, at this department where we can sit down and say, what's, what's good? What's not good? Obviously, we have the amazing Dr. Shepke at the table, and we can make our own decisions based on what we think uh, is valuable to the citizens and residents that we serve. So, um, you know, we happen to be in a, in, a, in a good situation there. Yeah, for sure. And, and I, th I think there's two points to that, Peter, you know, just to dovetail on that are really important takeaways. The first one being that there are a lot of agencies that are not fortunate enough to have EMS specific medical directors and physicians on board. And, you know, unfortunately, I feel that then you're in a position where you lack that data or that ability to put that much time and effort into changing protocols as you start to move forward and, and try to advance the profession. Number two, like you said, you're in Florida and, <laughs> you know, there's a lot less red tape than some of these other states, including the one that I uh, live in. So uh, you, you have that benefit. So again, these are, these are great things that you have in your favor and you are putting those, those things to great use. So kudos to you, Charlie, let me talk to you a little bit about uh, how these protocols start to take form and, and how they are looked at on an annual basis. Do they change on an annual basis? Are they changed uh, on a, you know, every three years type basis? Again, it's all about data, but what goes into these protocol and policy changes? Yeah, Mike. So thank you for directing the question towards me because I could tell you I used to have all black hair and now I've got a bunch of grays poking through. <laughs> uh, this, this progression thing really does take a toll on you after a while. But to answer the first question, we were doing something that was every two or three years, right? We said, we're going to gather the information. We're not going to touch the protocols for two years. And then after two years, we'll come back. We'll look at the protocols. We'll make the adjustments and we'll re-educate all of our people. Well, here's a problem with that. 
with uh, drug shortages, with you know something cutting edge paper comes out and says you really should be doing this or you shouldn't be doing that. Are you really going to wait two years? So we found ourselves looking at something saying, okay, me as the EMS chief, I've got a, a protocol book that's over here. And every time I want to make a change, I'm creating memos and I'm sending memos downstream. Here's the problem though. If the protocol books on the truck and it's not a living document, then essentially you have a bunch of memos that nobody can memorize, right? The, the people in the streets aren't looking for memos when it comes to treatment. They're looking for what they know and what's in front of them. So for the first time this year, 2023, we're going to have a living document that we store. Uh, we store it on the Hantevi app. So it, it's a crazy concept because we always think of, you know, Dr. Antevi's system, the Hantevi app is pediatrics, but essentially it's adults and pediatrics now. And it's a live document with a live checklist where we can make the changes, we can educate our folks, and that document is up to date as, you know, if, if we see something today that we want to do tomorrow, by tonight, we should be able to get it in that document. Wow. That, that is pretty cool. That is cutting edge. And that's, you know, even before you get to the medicine, that's cutting edge as far as how you can access it. So again, that's great. Um, and, and there's a lot of jealous people out here and I'll just let you know that I'm one of them, but let's get into the meat and the potatoes of this. We, we said that we were going to pick out five and, and Lord knows that we could pick a lot more than that. I, you know, looking at your, your policies and your protocols, there's, it's, it's like a, an encyclopedia. So well, let's just pick out the top five that we feel are right in the wheelhouse for us. And, and let's get started with double sequential defibrillation or, or DSED, which, you know, listen, that's been out there for a while, right? It's just that it's always been kind of like a special consideration. You're putting this right into policy now. So let's talk a little bit about that and what went into putting that into print in a living document. Yeah, I'll start by saying that there were some people smarter than we are up in North Carolina, the Wake County folks who have been doing DSED for quite a while, probably more, more than 10 years. Um, then came along a super smart physician from Canada, Dr. Sheldon Cheskies, who's become a great friend. He's just a wonderful man. He's like a hardcore EMS researcher, the best of the best. He said, let's do the correct study, a study that's an RCT, a study that can be published in the New England Journal, which it ultimately was, um, and so along the way, we kept checking in and seeing his pilot data, and we knew that we were going along the right track. And fortunately, since 2017 at our department, we actually implemented uh, double sequential uh, defibrillation. And, you know, Charlie, Charlie has the data here uh, to, to show it. Um, and if you look at the outcomes from Dr. Chesky's paper, and everyone needs to read the New England Journal paper because... When you have survival, the tripling of survival with DSED, you have the doubling of neurointact survival from vector change. That's something that everybody needs to pay attention to and everyone needs to consider. Obviously, Charlie will talk about the logistics of that and that not everyone can do that. Um, at least the double sequential is hard to do if you don't have two monitors or an AAD and a monitor. But the vector change, all of us should be able to do tomorrow. Interesting. Charlie, logistics. Yeah. So let me just start by saying um, our first case, and, and again, the doctors probably don't want to hear this, but I guarantee you the paramedics that are listening to the podcast do. The first case was actually in 2015. And I had an EMS supervisor that had attended the Gathering of Eagles conference. And, you know, a doctor came out and spoke about double sequential defibrillation. So the EMS supervisor looks at me, says, hey, can I do this tomorrow? And I said, sure, why not? The medical director's not listening. Let's do it. They're here. They're talking. The heck, it, let's do it. So, uh, you know, gentleman's down from Ohio visiting us, uh, seizure-like activity. They put him in the back of the truck. They find out that he's in V-fib. Uh, you know, they've shocked him five times and nothing they can do is, you know, getting him out of this V-fib state. So we determined that he's in refractory V-fib and they go with double sequential defibrillation. They do it three times, three double sequential defibrillations, and ultimately they break his rhythm. They take him to the, the hospital with the pulse. Again, 2015, they determine that he has an LAD. They stent him and three days later he wakes up uh, and they get his wife's phone number who's in Ohio who's sick out of her mind because she doesn't know where her husband is and we reunite the family. So, you know, this was something that again was is out there. Just are you able to say, yes, we're going to do this? You know, can we push the limits? Because essentially if the patient remains pulseless, 
they're not going to live, you know, and certain hospitals won't do anything about it, unfortunately. So until you can get them reperfused, uh, you know, to where they have ROSC, you'd be surprised what some of the hospitals will or will not do with that case. So as far as the logistics go, I just wanted to share that story because it was, you know, it's just seeing it and then doing it are two different things. As far as logistics goes, for us, we're spoiled. We have ALS units throughout our organization, you know, whether it's our um, rescue truck or our ladders or our engines, whoever's showing up on scene has a monitor. But, you know, like Dr. Entevi saying, that anterior posterior approach versus an anterior lateral approach, I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. So if you only had the monitor, and let's say normally we start off with the anterior lateral approach, if you did that three times, let's just say three shocks and the patient remained in V-fib, and it's so important to understand the difference between recurrent and refractory. Refractory is it doesn't go away. So you hit shock, they stay in that rhythm. If you hit shock and the rhythm changes to a systole or PEA, that is not refractory. So I think that that's a key take home. However, after that third shock, if they stay in refractory, just move the pads. That's a, that, that's a, it's an easy opportunity to change something that cannot be broken, right? Einstein said it best. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. So for those that just have one monitor, do it that way. For those that have two monitors, don't be scared to put the anterior posterior pads on first, put them on your CPR device if you have one, and be prepared after the third shock with no change to go anterior or lateral, and you'll be ready for double sequential defibrillation, minimizing the hands off the chest. So I think it should be made very clear that when you do this, you're going to deliver three standard defibrillations first. And then if it's refractory, we go to double se sequential. That is correct. That, or at least that's the way that we have it on our protocol. The publications that are out there, Basically, we just rip off and duplicated what they say, and that's that's where we came up with uh, the three standard defibrillations. Very interesting. And you have the data that proves that this is this is extremely successful in the field. So interestingly enough, I was able to pull some of our data before we got onto the podcast today, and we did have 27 cases that um, that required double sequential defibrillation that were in refractory. Obviously, we had a bunch that were in recurrent that you know we took out of the data. But essentially, out of those 27 cases, we know for a fact that 11 of those cases are walking around in Palm Beach County with a CPC score of one or two, meaning that they still have neurological functioning, uh, or they still have neurological function, and they're functioning members of society, which that's very important for us. You know, a couple of years ago, we said, let's stop, you know, beating around this ROSC category because everyone's excited about ROSC. Well, ROSC is great, but really what you want is somebody that's able to live their life again, right? If they're a golfer, they can go play golf again. If they're a tennis player, they could go swing the tennis racket. So we know for a fact that 11 out of 27 are able to do that and are living at home with their families again. It's like 40%. I mean, that, that really is impressive. Uh, you know, I mean, again, when we're talking about something that does not have great percentages, that really is impressive. And again, uh, you know, something that is is aggressive and is showing extremely uh, beneficial results. Let's stay in the cardiac arrest realm and move on to something that is also getting a lot of steam these days, and that's no epi for cardiac arrest. And let's hit this from the adult and the pediatric side because we want to keep Peter happy. Um, but, you know, no epi in cardiac arrest. Let's talk about that. Let's break into that forum. Peter, talk to me. Yeah. So epinephrine, the reason people don't like epinephrine is because it's a drug that if used in the alive patient will try to put them into cardiac arrest, right? You take, if anyone takes a milligram of one to 10,000 and throws it in their uh, 18 gauge, it's in their right AC, all of them will end up in the cath lab, right? right so right. The, the, the alive heart does not like epinephrine. So you give epinephrine to the dead heart and what it's doing is it's increasing SVR, it's increasing the diastolic blood pressure, getting the coronaries reperfused during diastole and boom, the heart comes back to life, right? If you have a heart that's already beating, even though it's in V-fib here in this particular case, giving it epi is known to make things worse. So why would you give a heart that's fibrillating a medication that will make it worse? There's data out there to suggest that giving epinephrine to shockable rhythms is harmful. And it's just that the, uh, the guidelines 
haven't been willing yet to take on that data. Why? They're, they're looking for data that is, you know, randomized controlled trial, uh, th- those types of things. And I hate to say it that um, we don't have that data. We're probably not going to get that data. And so we used the data that was available. We didn't just pull this out of the sky. And we said, instead of giving you something that's going to make the fibrillation worse, there's a beta blocker, Esmolol, that will actually make it better. And, and there is data on Esmolol, and a lot of people are doing that. So we have, for years now, pulled out Epi from the shockable rhythm protocol, and that's the right thing to do. When will the guidelines catch up? They may be expecting a larger series, a larger a randomized controlled trial, which, which you can't blame them for. Um, however, not all things that we do in our current practice of EMS has an RCT behind it. That would be a class 1A recommendation. And by the way, to go to the pediatric thing, there's only one class 1A recommendation in all of PALS. And, and that has nothing to do with what we do in EMS. It's make sure that you put you place a temperature probe uh, on a patient who's being cooled. That's the, that's the class 1A recommendation. So lots of what we do doesn't have the RCT behind it. And I think people need to look very close at the physiology of epinephrine and VFib and look at the data that exists. And then they have to make a decision on a either medical director level or in those states on a state level. So we're looking at defibrillating, obviously. And then with with that uh, rhythm, whether it be VFib, retac, we're going right to the antiarrhythmic. So we're going to use amiodarone. And then talk a little bit about esmolol, because I don't know that everybody understands it or are utilizing it. Maybe give a little bit of background on it. Yeah, so I think beta blockers, uh, when you look at beta blockers, Esmolol is, in, in my opinion, and of course I'll defer to the doctors because I'm not the smart one in the room here, but you know, it's the perfect drug. And the reason why is because it comes on quick and it goes off quick. So mm-hmm. you know, if you look at the half-life of Esmolol, it's a very short-acting drug. So you know, our goal is to get them. So it, it's think about, you know, you've got this electrical storm going on of the heart, right? This cascade of, you know, catecholamine production. Basically, think about Esmolol as suppressing that catecholamine production, but it's only going to last for a short period of time. So once we're able to get them out of this state and they get out of this hyper-bathed catecholamine state and we're able to convert them back to a perfusing rhythm, it shouldn't affect their blood pressure because it's only going to last for about 10 minutes. So it's not going to be something that's you know going to be on board for two or three days later where you know, they're sitting there and they're on a bunch of pressures to, you know, make sure that they have good perfusion and do they are able to adequate, you know, uh, perfuse all the tissues and all those other things that we worry about for the vital organs. So in, in theory, Esmol is actually the perfect drug because it stops that electrical production, right? It stops that just cascade of dump of catecholamine. So I think that that's very important knowing how the drug works. And the number two is that it only lasts for a short period of time. And now you know who the smartest guy in the room is. <laughs> yeah. He, he never gives himself enough credit. Exactly. He never does, exactly. but we'll give him a little bit of credit, but not too much. <laughs> you've seen the size of that head. It'll never. Um, all right. So, so cardiac arrest, listen, a lot, a lot has gone in to the, to the cardiac arrest algorithm, which is important because we are starting to see a lot more sudden cardiac arrest, right? And we are treating this much different with, you know, heads up CPR and, you know, we, we are using different types of things, whether it be, you know, uh, or automatic, um, you know, uh, CP compressions and things like that. I, you know, I just think that this is an area where there's been a great deal of improvement as opposed to the way we have done things over the last, you know, five to 10 years where you're standing up in the back of the ambulance doing one-handed compressions and just kind of going through the motions. I'm, I'm curious if you agree with that. Yeah. You know what I would say to that, Mike, is that, I mean, we've kind of glossed over the, the, the absolute basics of CPR that we focus on. And if you come and see what we do to our recruits when they get here, High-performance CPR, which is a BLS-focused maneuver, in our opinion, is the most important thing. The drugs are all, in our opinion, secondary. When you hear Shepke talk, he'll tell you that none of these drugs work. So um, I, I would advise everybody out there, before they start doing all this other stuff, make sure you have the basics down pat of high-performance BLS care in CPR. 
Yeah. And, and I think if we could add just one thing to that, though, is, you know, make sure that you're set up in some type of a network. You know, obviously CARES is amazing, but you got to get outcome data. That That's so important because if your whole premises of change is based upon ROSC rates, it's very misleading at times. So if you know when you're making a change and you have the evidence-based information to say, we know this patient did well, well, over time, you should start to pick up on trends. And ultimately, it allows you to see how you're doing as an organization as well. I, I think it's an important point. You know, Peter, I, I think actually like two weeks ago, I texted you and I, I, I asked about the high performance BLS CPR approach because, you know, in New Jersey, you, we well know this is a two-tiered system. And although I'm a paramedic, I run an agency that is BLS specific. And we have started to focus a lot more on results from, you know, our CPR and, and our, our BLS codes that we're running. And, you know, you said, you said it, uh, in a sense that, you know, you really need to pay attention to the basics, you know, just like in, in mostly everything we do in EMS, the basics come first. You can't have advanced without basic. And, you know, you made it very clear that a lot of these things that we're doing in these codes are basic specific. Right. Well, and I'll tell you, and I'd love to hear Charlie's comment on this, but if you're doing it right, every single code, you're looking at the feedback from that code. So if you have LifePack using a code stat, if you have Zoll using case review, where the, the team, the crew who treated that patient can see a compression to compression view, um, how many seconds were they off the chest, right? Like look at every single pause. Are you hitting the two minute rhythm checks or are you are, is your rhythm checks every seven minutes? Unless you're really actually doing the training on high performance CPR, getting the feedback, giving a non-punitive review to that crew, you're never going to have a positive outcome. And so Chief Coyle has done an amazing job of making that feedback happen really quickly. So Charlie, if you want to mention that. Yeah. And, and I think just to kind of answer what you said earlier, Mike, or the conversation you and Dr. Antevi shared, you know, th this is Dr. Shepke summarizes it the best, in my opinion, right? People that are dead, BLS care brings them back to life. It's ALS care that keeps them alive. So if you have somebody that is dead, the only hope you have at resuscitating them is good quality BLS. When I say good quality BLS, high performance compressions, making sure you're pausing every two minutes because if it's a shockable rhythm, we've got to correct that. I can't stress enough the importance of having a nice controlled ventilatory rate. Whoever's squeezing the bag, they cannot be squeezing the bag at the rate of their own pulse and making sure the volume is correct. So those things right there will take somebody that has a chance at living, if there is a chance, and bring them back to life. And then all the stuff thereafter, as far as managing their blood pressure and their heart rate and pacing them and doing all those other things, those things keep them alive. But BLS is what brings people back to life. Very, very well said. And so with that, we will pivot and we will go to the seizure protocol. And so... Palm Beach County, leading from the front, ketamine for seizures. Now, not initially, right? But ketamine for seizures. Let's talk about it. Uh, Peter, maybe you want to jump in. Sure. So ketamine, if you look at the literature, there's a lot of literature on ketamine and seizures. But that literature all comes from ICU care, and it's almost always on day three or further beyond, right? Because they've tried everything else. And once the ketamine goes on, poof. In many instances, the seizure goes away. Looking at the EMS protocol, I can say that most people listening to this probably have one drug for seizure, which is midazolam is what most people use. And to use uh, the sentence that Charlie used earlier, midazolam, why midazolam? It's a fast on, fast off benzodiazepine. It, it'll stop the seizure quickest out of any of the three. And, and, and it's it's off right away, which is why in the hospital we end up using Ativan because we want it to stay on for longer, right? Mm -hmm. um, but in EMS, we only have that one medication. So here you are out in the rural area, an urban or suburban, and you, you may have a long transport time, you may have a short transport time, but we know that if you have a patient in status, epilept epilepticus, refractory status, they're just seizing the entire time, we know that not just the morbidity, but the mortality goes way up in those patients. So wouldn't it be nice to have a drug that stops seizures to the tune of 90% of the time? We ended up adding it to our protocol years ago. 
we then, just like Charlie mentioned, we evaluated our data and we found a 90 plus percent success rate with very few uh, negative effects. And those negative effects were hypoxia that occurred even before the ketamine was given. So that being said, I think that if you have ketamine and you know how to use ketamine, that's a big caveat because it's a medication that people, I think, sometimes don't understand the complexity of, then it definitely needs to be added in. The data is there. Many departments have switched to it. And um, we're about to publish some more data, which I think Charlie has in front of him here, um, that, that should move everybody to using ketamine for refractory status, meaning you've given Versed once, you've given Versed a second time, and now you're on to hitting a different receptor rather than the GABA receptor. Why not ketamine as the initial? No, because most patients don't need it. Ketamine is for refractory status, right? And Versed is easy to give. You can give it uh, rather quickly. Um, yes, ketamine would probably work there, but I, I would definitely reserve it as a secondary drug only in refractory patients. All right, so let's talk about how we're going to give it, uh, Charlie. Uh, so we have refractory seizure, and then your protocol states that we're going to give the infusion, correct? Yeah, so basically, um, you know, we've already given our Versed twice. And, you know, what's next? What, what, what is next on the docket for us to be able to do? So we added ketamine in the mix, and really we made it pretty simple. We, we're, our dose for adults is 100 milligrams. And essentially what we do is we, you know, we have 50 cc normal saline bags that we carry on the trucks and we have a 60 drop set that we use with this. So we try and make our infusions very simple. And essentially all we're doing is putting the 100 milligrams, you know, which is, um, you know, one ml for us, the concentration we have, put in a 50 cc bag, put the 60 drop set on and run the infusion wide open. So essentially it'll, it, the delivery time's roughly two minutes, uh, depending on IV patency. And essentially, if the seizure stops in the middle of the, uh, you know, so let's just say you've given 25 of the 50 milliliters and the seizure stops, we're going to continue to give the infusion. And the purpose being is just for what Dr. Entevi said earlier, essentially, you know, the benzodiazepines are, are targeting the GABA receptor, but essentially the ketamine is going after the N NMDA receptor. So just think about, you know, having a seizure activity with both receptors involved but know that the Versa is not going to necessarily wipe out that cascade of the MDA inflammation, right? So basically by us targeting the, you know, the NMDA receptor with the ketamine, this is a brand new receptor site you're going after at this point. So we want to saturate the receptor site with the ketamine. So we will give the whole entire infusion. Interestingly enough, though, I do want to add the data and I'm ahead of myself on the publication, but it is coming because now we have enough. But essentially we looked at 82 cases. Out of those eight, we looked at 260 cases, but we had to weed out all the ones that really didn't fit this criteria, which whittled us down to 82 cases. These 82 cases all received two doses of Versed. And what we did is all of them got 100 milligrams of ketamine. 76 of those cases were terminated by using 100 milligrams of ketamine. So again, that does give you that, that if you're looking for that number of percentage wise, that does put you in the 90th percentile, which is early data for us because we looked at it in 30 cases, but it's true now with double the cases, right? So, I mean, it, it's definitely impre impressive literature. And, you know, it's one of those things like Dr. Antevi said at the very beginning, you know, what do you do when you can't stop something pre-hospital and you know that this patient is potentially apneic and you know, hypoxic, how, how do you fix that? So the key is to stop it. And, and we do believe that this is a very safe, um, safe way of doing that. And for kids too, Mike, so for our protocol for kids, we have two milligrams per kilo, IM or IN um, as well. So, uh, in, and we've had a number of kids and we have a few kids in our, in our district here that we know who they are. And right, parents right. now ask for the ketamine when we get there. <laughs> yeah, they're as good as the providers now. Yeah, we, sure. we have an actual adult patient that has something from his neurologist that says treat his condition with ketamine when we get there. Yeah, excellent, awesome stuff. Well, Mike, let's go. Yeah, go ahead. One go ahead, very, very important thing because you know there are some cases now where um, some there have been some patient harm in other states. When you have ketamine and you're and you're slamming it in 
Mm-hmm. And when you have the high concentration, which is the 100 milligram per ml concentration, and mm-hmm. you get IV push, that's a big no-no. And that's because that causes laryngospasm, and your, your oh. patient will end up not breathing for 30 seconds, a minute, and you may have to paralyze them. When you give ketamine um, over 60 seconds or greater, which is why what Charlie commented on is so important, it goes over two minutes, mm-hmm. not get that laryngospasm. So you cannot have a protocol that says give one per kilo IV of ketamine mm-hmm. and not describe the, the, the way to administer that medication. Gotcha. Can't blast away. Yeah. Understood. And Mike, just to add, since we're on the topic of, you know, making sure that we're super safe with the drug, it's very important because when a patient's seizing, it's very difficult to get all your monitoring equipment on them, right? It's hard to put the limb leads on them. It's hard to get accurate blood pressures. And tidal CO2 is, I mean, it is so important to start early on this call. You should be monitoring that so you can see that exchange, right? So we need to know that if we need to ventilate the patient, are we truly ventilating them? So, you know, all of the monitoring devices are so important uh, because when you mix the benzo with the ketamine, you could potentially have a patient that requires a little ventilatory assistance. So you want to make sure all the monitoring devices are set up, constant SpO2. You know, if you've got the probe and the probe is, is not working, use the sticker, right? Because that'll stay on the finger. So it's very important to use all of your tools to help guide you throughout your treatment. A systematic approach has to happen, which is right. always super important. All right, let's uh, let's go into the next protocol, which is I know near and dear to both of your hearts, and you have been pioneers with this, um, you and and certainly uh, the state of Texas, and um, that is the whole blood transfusion. Um, and you know, I, I know that we we've actually I think done a podcast just on this, but this now is in protocol standard. Um, and really is the go-to, um, for, you know, for hemorrhage and sanguination. So maybe, uh, talk a little bit about this, uh, and how this all came to fruition and why it is now just standard practice. Yeah. I'll, I'll talk about the actual data and, and where it is and why people are quote unquote too afraid to make the change. A lot of the data with whole blood administration obviously came from the military and it showed great success there. It's on the battlefield, it's, being, it's happening very close by. When you look at the refill trial, which is a, it was done here, it was, it was actually done in Canada, but it was done you know, kind of in a civilian population. When you look at the time to administration of that whole blood, the actual blood was given, I think patient contact was like 50 something minutes and the whole blood was administered at 80 something minutes. And that data showed he- whole blood doesn't seem to work in the field. Fast forward to what they're doing in San Antonio. Um, the, the folks in Texas have really pioneered this with the help of people like Randy Schaefer, uh, Dr. C.J. Winkler. And they've shown that if you give the whole blood early on the scene, it makes a huge difference. Pop over to New Orleans, where they've, quote unquote, reversed the murder rate because they're giving the whole blood on the scene. And that data from Texas, New Orleans, and we just are indeed that, you know, Dr. Jim Roach in, in BSL with Heath Clark and now with Chief Cole, what he did incredibly here to, to uh, install what I think is the most important change in trauma care in the last 100 years, which everybody needs to be doing if they can. And I would say in the next five years, I would hope that every EMS system has incorporated this or some something of the sort. Um, I think we all need to be making that change. And once... This data, the data from Texas, New Orleans, Broward, Palm Beach, and all the other people into this registry, which is from Tulane Registry, you're now going to start to see published peer-reviewed literature that's going to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that blood, whole blood early on the scene, way before you get to the hospital, is tremendously life-saving. Without question. Um, you know, we we have read the results, the data, uh, you know, Charlie, you even gave the example of, I, I believe it was the motor vehicle accident, correct? Where the patient was asking for it. Oh, that, yeah, that was, uh, that was Heath Clark, uh, down in BSO. Yes. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'll share a quick case and, it, and it's hard because we're looking at data, right? We've got about 45 usages under our belt here at Palm Beach County Fire Rescue in the trauma world. But, you know, we started looking at severity scores 
And, you know, some of them could be misleading because there is there, there's a couple different scores that trauma uh, registries look at. And I, I'll share a quick case here. There was a, a patient that was shot, and I'll say it's a pediatric patient multiple times. And when you look at the injury severity score from the trauma centers, it's very low. So the probability of survivability is very high in this kid. But here's one thing the scores won't tell you. Kids in the back of the truck, I have multiple supervisors in the back of the truck. The kid's pale, the kid's diaphoretic, and the kid's in and out of consciousness. If I give you that scenario at any EMS agency I go to anywhere across the nation, they're going to say, take his airway. Take the mm -hmm. airway. So we're hovering around getting ready to take the airway, and lo and behold, we start administering the whole blood. So as we're setting up for DSI, we give the whole blood, and guess what happens next? The kid wakes up. So when you look at the severity score, maybe they didn't hit any of the major arteries or the organs or anything like that. But giving him the whole blood and reperfusing him at that current time took us out of a pre-hospital airway, which we know could be detrimental in so many different ways, especially when you look at a low flow state and then you start to introduce positive pressure ventilation. We avoided that whole cascade of stuff by giving the whole blood. So, you know, I can tell you, I could, I could talk about this honestly for two or three hours and share all the stories given to us by our EMS supervisors, but it's one of these things now that it's very logistical. It's logistically challenging, but it's definitely worth it. I promise you there has been nothing, at least in my 19 years in this, this game, um, that I've seen change the game like whole blood pre-hospital. Yeah. yeah. And we had spoken about this in our podcast uh, previously is that, you know, resus and avoiding this tube, right? Keeping them off the tube is, is such a huge thing that ha has been a paradigm shift in pre-hospital. I, I you mean, over the years, like it used to be just, you know, take the airway, take the airway, right? Advanced airway, always advanced airway. And now we're trying to avoid it as much as, much as we possibly can, because we know the results. My friend, Mark Peel, Dr. Mark Peel says, resuscitate before you intubate. Yep, and, I love it. And it's because of what Charlie just mentioned. You and, know? And, and interestingly enough, Mark, Dr. Peel and I had this conversation two days prior before that case. He had said really? this, this exact thing. This was on a Friday that we had the conversation. And I believe it was on Monday that we had this case. That's crazy. Um, again, the, the, the data and, and the results, they don't lie, right? I mean, it's, that's the best part of this stuff is, and I think that's why when we talk about the, uh, the aggressive nature with this, I think, uh, Peter, to your point, nothing gets implemented without data, Correct. right? And the data shows that this is effective and it is effective without question. It is, um, Let's head into our final protocol, uh, which again has you know taken the, the pre-hospital world by storm over the years, and, and that's code sepsis, and and certainly trying to treat that in the field better than we have in the past. And you, good folks down there in the great state of Florida, have now implemented antibiotics as part of your protocol. So, uh, Doctor Antevi, maybe you want to jump into this and, and let us know how this came to the forefront. Well, first I have to give credit where credit is due. Dr. Shepke is, you know, way, way ahead of all of us by kind of, you know, by years, light years. And uh, he's right, right? He basically said, we have a patient that we know needs to get treated. And we wait till we get to the hospital. And everyone thinks that right when you hit the doors of the uh, ambulance bay at the hospital, that they're waiting with the antibiotic. Well, that doesn't happen. You got to go to the computer. You have to order it. Pharmacy's got to mix it. They got to tube it down. You're lucky if you get it in the next you know, uh, 60 minutes, which is what their timer says. However, if you look at from the time the patient called 911, that's the true time start in our opinion. And Dr. Shepke said, he said, listen, if we get there and we have the right criteria, let's go ahead and administer, obviously normal saline because these, patient, these patients are, uh, they're in shock. Let's administer push dose epi if they're hypotensive and let's administer the antibiotics very quickly. And when we looked at our data after we implemented the protocol, we got the we got the antibiotics on within 12 minutes of them calling 911. So if you look at what the hospitals were doing, and he had it on a slide somewhere, it was it, it was some obscene number. From the time the patient called 911, it was like 120 minutes before the patient actually got antibiotics. So when you have a tenfold difference in the delivery time of a life-saving medication, you do it. 
So that's what we do in, in EMS. We have a big pushback on one particular thing, which is the hospitals want to get a blood culture. And why do they want to get a blood culture? It's because- CMS says so. CMS, <laughs> some people in Washington say, you have to get a blood culture. And it turns out when you look at all those blood cultures, many of them have contaminants in it. Many of them show up negative anyway. Um, and then in, in the patient who shows up positive, because they got treated so late, they're already dead, right? Yep. So we, we said we got one of the best infectious disease docs around, Dr. Larry Bush. Mm -hmm. And he came on and he said, listen, there's no need to get blood cultures before you give antibiotics. But if you're really stuck on that and you really want to get an, a, a blood culture, even after we gave the antibiotic, they sell these new bottles, these blood culture bottles that are actually, that actually will suck out all of the antibiotic. It costs an extra dollar. So if the hospitals really want a blood culture that doesn't have the antibiotics swirling around, they can do that as well. So we've covered all of our bases. We've had to speak to a lot of unhappy physicians and hospitals, but they've all gotten over it and the patients are happier for it. And one last thing is I have to give a lot of credit to Dr. Paul Banerjee. Um, Banerjee is a Shepke-esque in that he, he's been doing this for a, quite a long time, I think back since 2012. So he's also one of these people who always knows how to get on the front end of these innovative things. Let's talk a little bit about the criteria uh, that need to be met, two of the three. So the, the HAT criteria is what you refer to it as. So Charlie, maybe touch upon that a little bit. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think that the key for that is before you get to the hack criteria, you have to be a kind of an investigator, right? So mm -hmm. you've got to, we got to find the patient that's got, you know, this UTI that's being treated, right? We got to find this patient that's in the nursing home that's got a bunch of bed sores on them. So, you know, hack criteria, a lot of people meet the hack criteria. And, and when I, what I mean by hat is hypotension, right? Less than 100. A new onset of ultramental status for the adult, you know, less, you know, for let's just say, a new onset of ultramental status, GCS less than 14, but a new onset. That's the key, right? So it can't be the person that's intoxicated walking around town. That's a different type of uh, GCS of 14. This is persons normally AO times four. They run around with a GCS of 15. And for some ever reason today, they're not making sense. Mm -hmm. And then of course, you know, how fast are they breathing, right? Their respiratory rate. Uh, anything greater than 22 obviously gives you the check, check box or if the patient has an entitled CO2 of less than 25. So we don't count that as two points. We count it as either or. But if that patient has any of those two things with some suspicion that there is infection, then we put them as a sepsis alert, right? We don't use the terminology suspected sepsis. It either is you are a sepsis alert or you are not a sepsis alert. If you are a sepsis alert, you're getting the bundle if you're not, we're going to transport you to the local facility and we're going to treat your underlying conditions. Okay. So talk to me about the bundle. Yeah. So the bundle for us is just like Dr. Intevi said, right? We're going to, we're going to give the fluids. Obviously that's, that's there. We're going to give you a liter of fluid and, you know, uh, we're going to try and give you another liter if we can. Putting two liters in is something that's kind of difficult pre-hospital, just down here in South Florida, just due to proximity of hospitals. Our hospitals are pretty close. So two liters is pretty ambitious. Obviously, we'll, we'll monitor lung sounds, uh, you know, every 500 milliliters, et cetera. And then, uh, you know, recephin is what we use. So recephin is very easy. It's in powder form for us. Uh, you know, it's just you reconstitute it with 20 mLs of normal saline, uh, much like we do a lot of other things. At, after we get those 20 cc's, we draw that up, put it in a 50 cc bag, and then we run it in over 10 minutes. So it's not too quick of a, uh, you know, of an administration. Secondly is gentamicin. And gentamicin is pretty simple. It's an IM injection for us. But I will tell you that gentamicin, unfortunately, for some reason after COVID, went astronomically high. So the, the appealing part is when we, when we built this protocol, obviously the infectious disease doctor that Dr. Intevi spoke of, Dr. Bush, he was the one that informed us because he wanted to make sure that we were hitting every uh, opportunity for infection. He says, and there's no one drug that does that. I mean, to the best of its capabilities, there's always like a supplemental uh, antibiotics that they try and pair together. That's why we have two of them together. Mm -hmm. Stefan's got a little bit of greater properties of covering space, so it can, it can hit a little more real estate. But gentamicin, gentamicin picks up the rest of the areas that rocephin cannot. So gentamicin was very inexpensive at the time, but it has went up astronomically now. So 
Uh, we do not have it on the trucks at this current time. So we still give the Rosefin. Uh, hopefully the price continues to go down a little bit and we will put it back on the truck, but a very simple IM injection. So you're given the Rosefin in over 10 minutes and then you're given an IM injection of gentamicin. And then, of course, uh, the, the fluid, you know, the bolus and, and precautions made because of the, the fluid onboarding for, you know, CHF, renal failure patients, you know, obviously having an, an eye on that all the time. Yeah, always. Uh, of course, you know, every every treatment we spoke about today uh, requires a constant monitoring approach, right? I mean, the patient has to be on the cardiac monitor, SpO2 and tidal CO2. Every tool that we have in our toolbox, we want to throw at these patients. And and ultimately, we want to get them to the hospital as quick as possible, right? And, and we use the terminology as a sepsis alert. So we do alert the hospital prior to getting there uh, just to make sure that they're able to do all of their tests and chest x-rays, et cetera, blood gases as soon as we get to the hospital, lactate levels, um, all of those things. And, and I hope that uh, just so people know, there, there, is, there is data on pre-hospital antibiotics. Um, we, we now have data from Paul Banerjee. We have our own data. I, w- I would advise that if people are going to do this, you have to look at a few data points. Number one is, at what point did you give the antibiotics? From the moment that this patient called 911, when did antibiotics get on? In the patients that did not get pre-hospital antibiotics, so many agencies who are listening to this today, try to find out from the 911 call time, when did the hospital give the antibiotics and how many minutes was that? Number two, find out outcomes. Because if you're not looking for your outcomes and evaluating whether the hospital did agree that this patient was septic and whether the patient lived or didn't live, that's in the you know very very important data point. So don't start any of these things that we're telling you without having some knowledge of what you currently do, and then having some knowledge of what changed afterwards. Because we're sitting here today, we're not you know cocky, overconfident people. If something doesn't work and it looks like it's causing harm, and, and thank God we haven't done anything like that, then we will change it, right? Uh, because it's all about making a change evaluating that change, and then making adjustments based on your data. Well, I'll tell you what. Do you realize that in the last close to 50 minutes, we only covered five protocols? (laughs) (laughs) Do you know that? (laughs) But I will tell you this. uh, You know, it, it really is a pleasure getting to rap with you guys about this because there is so much thought and care that goes into constructing these protocols and these practices. And and certainly, you know, I, I always say the Palm Beach County Fire leads from the front, but there are many agencies out there that are doing these types of things. And, you know, kudos to all of those agencies that are really trying to push the profession, because if we are an extension of the emergency department and the physicians within, then we should be providing the same medicine and the same care that they are inside the ED. And I think that you, you made mention of that on, on many occasions, that we shouldn't be expecting that as soon as we get to the doors, that everything is going to just miraculously happen, right? We know. I mean, I mean, alone, wall times alone, right? We know that there are inherent delays that are occurring all over the country right now. And so we have to be the best that we can pre-hospitally to deliver the same care that they're going to get in the ED or else what, what purpose are we serving? Go ahead, Peter. I know you want to say something. Just real quick that all five protocols that we talked about today are EMS first problems. None of them are hospital first problems. And so we're not trying to undercut anyone or take anyone's pride and joy away. We're trying to save people. And all of the things that we talked about today are minutes to seconds problems, and they can't wait for 60 minutes. They cannot wait for 90 minutes. They have to be done today. And that's why we feel these five are very important for people to consider implementing in their agencies very shortly. Guys, I, I mean this uh, wholeheartedly. It is always a pleasure having both of you on here. Um, you guys are fantastic. And, uh, you know, I know we'll be doing another one very soon. But I do want to thank you for coming on and sharing these protocols uh, with every with everybody that's listening. And, and certainly we implore all of these agencies to go back and, and to be progressive and to push it forward because there's so much data out there that supports these types of uh, ways of doing business on the street. And so uh, Dr. Peter Antevi and Chief Charlie Coyle, thank you once again 
for coming on with us today. Yeah, well, Mike, I just want to we want to thank you uh, number one for for all you do for EMS. You know, uh, you bring all the experts on. You find not that we're experts, but you you find the experts today. I think I think you ran out of experts, so you got myself. <laughs> so we appreciate that. But I, I really appreciate all the hard work you do, and through EMS World, you know, anytime I put on your podcast or we go to your conferences there's always something that we learn that we bring back here and we put into practice. So uh, from the bottom of our heart, uh, we thank you. Palm Beach County Fire Rescue, thank you. Our men and women that serve the organization, uh, organization thank you. And ultimately, our citizens, thank you. So uh, thank you so much for, for doing all that for the EMS community. I want to I echo that. And, um, and Mike, just so you know that um, the, for the people listening, we're happy to share. So we're happy to share our protocols. Chief Coyle has done an incredible job putting out videos on all of these protocol changes. They're on our YouTube channel, Palm Beach County Fire Rescue YouTube channel. If anybody wants to reach out, if people don't agree with what we're doing, we want to hear from them as well. But I really want to echo what Charlie said, Mike, which is that you you, you bring out the best in a lot of people. We love the fact that you're highlighting what we're doing here. We're thankful for that. Uh, and just thank you for all you do, my friend. Well, listen, guys, I really do appreciate that. And the truth of the matter is it's one of the great things that I get to do is talk to so many great people and then make friendships from it. And again, I, I, you know, I can't say enough about what you guys are doing professionally, but also personally, uh, you know, I will say that I, I had a, a family issue down there in Florida and you guys were the first ones to come to help me. And that's just from these relationships that we have fostered. And again, eternally grateful and friends forever. So, I want to thank you guys for that. I want to thank you for all that you do. And uh, I want to thank you for listening. And again, a quick reminder that September 18th to the 22nd, we will be back EMS World Expo in New Orleans. So make sure that you book early and book now if you can, because it's going to be great. There's going to be great people and there's going to be great classes. And I know that these two fine gentlemen will be there as well. And if we see you, come up to us and talk to us because we like to talk a lot. So again, thank you again to Dr. Peter Antevi, Chief. Charlie Coyle, and thank you for listening. Again, this is EMS World Podcast. Catch us again real soon. Talk later. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 